This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, I'll be interviewing the authors of the book Text as Data, a new framework for machine learning and the social sciences. Natural language processing has become a big new growth area in the social sciences, giving us new ways to explore old questions, as well as raising new questions we may not have thought to explore before. My guests today, Justin Grimmer, Molly Roberts, and Brandon Stewart, have each made consumer, uh, sorry, computer-assisted text analysis a central role in their research and um, have worked together and with other collaborators to make major methodological contributions to this field. Justin is a professor of political science at Stanford who studies Congress and political representation. Uh, Molly is a professor of political science at UC San Diego who studies the politics of information with a focus on China. And Brandon is a professor in the sociology department of Princeton University whose research is primarily on statistical methods. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, glad to have you here. Um, so first, uh, Brandon, why don't you uh, give us an overview for beginners of just, you know, what is text analysis? Um, is that even the right word to describe what, you know, text as data is the title of your book? Um, and uh, gives us just some, some simple examples of what it can be used for. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for, for having us. Um, I think text as data is a really exciting field. It One of the things that's complicated about it is that it gets called many different things in many different places, like, you know, text analysis or text as data, or um, you can even think of it as like an application of natural language processing, which is the term from computer science. But the, the core idea is that a lot of political and social interaction happens in text, whether or not that's like writing on the internet or news stories or transcripts of speeches, like just a lot of aspects of, of communication are, are happening in that way. And so that's a ton of data that we're, you know, potentially not accessing to study the things that we want to study. And so the, the sort of idea of the text as data movement is, okay, how can we quantify that information and leverage it at scale? And people have been doing things that, you know, you can think about as using text as data for a long time, but for for you know a big period of time it was very manual in its in its nature right it was it was sort of individual people coding um, things by hand or bored undergraduates flipping through the copies of the New York Times and the idea is now we have all of these statistical methods these machine learning methods that can help us um, work at the scale of millions of documents or you know billions of documents and so that just opens up whole new avenues so. Um, what, one of the things I, I love about this field is that 
you can use it for like every conceivable application. It really widens what we can study. So for example, Justin and his work has looked at how um, senators in the um, in the U.S. Senate sort of communicate with their constituents and how they frame um, their, their sort of representational style. Um, Molly has done great work on censorship in China and propaganda and thinking about um, how those things, um, you know, how those things are expressed in text. And so you can really go for like, all manner of, of different applications, um, going all the way back to one of the earliest applications, which was trying to figure out who wrote the unsigned Federalist Papers, which was actually work done by statisticians um, in the late uh, 1950s. So, um, so yeah, this is it's got a long history, but I think it's really come to the fore in the last like 10 years or so. So you, the examples you gave were mainly political science. Uh, you're in a sociology department. How is this sort of being used across the social sciences um, and uh, and even you know in in commercial applications? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's totally fair. Um, so I think it, it works in lots of sociology settings as well. Um, one of the sort of notable early or two notable early examples, um, some work by um, Paul DiMaggio, uh, Paul DiMaggio and his co-authors looked at. Um, newspaper coverage of the National Endowment for the Arts. And so you can sort of like kind of understand like how an organization is being covered. Um, Another really interesting example is um, Chris Bale, who's a sociologist at Duke, um, who wrote a book about um, the way that different um, uh, like civil organizations covered uh, uh, Muslims in the period after 9-11. And so, again, it, it's sort of like, you, you know, you can think about it as capturing something about how um, different groups are characterized, what they're thinking, um, how they're acting. And so there's really, um, you know, it's been used for uh, another great example. Um, some work by um, Alex Hanna covers, um, like, using it as a mechanism to capture protests and, like, just code up, like, where are protests happening and what are they about? It obviously also has huge implications in commercial spaces, right? Whether or not that's like writing newspaper articles um, really quickly and sort of assisting with the the production of writing. Um, It it could be cases of like tracking sentiment. So, you know, a sort of very common example of this is like managing brands, right? You've got tons of people on Twitter writing all kinds of things about your brand and you want to know, are people saying things that are like mostly positive or mostly negative? So I, I think, you know, there's just basically anything you can imagine that's in text. There's, you know, some, some hope of like leveraging one of these techniques. And I think we're only really scratching the surface of the kinds of things we can learn. So who's the, who's the audience of this book then? Do you think who'd you have in mind when you wrote it as kind of the typical reader? So I don't I don't want to monopolize the conversation. So I'll, I'll I'll take this I'll take this last one. But I think we really see it as aimed at three distinct audiences. So there are social scientists who really want to learn how this stuff can help them study what they want to study. There's computer scientists who are increasingly and like folks in industry who are increasingly um, studying social things and like might benefit from the social science and research design perspective that is, you know, covering, focusing on different things than maybe um, 
uh, you know, have been focused on in the past. And then the third category is uh, the area of digital humanities, um, which are the the folks in in literature, in art, in archaeology, in like history that are thinking about the way that we can leverage these kinds of, of digital techniques. And so um, there's, there's a whole rich history there that has kind of developed in parallel with um, the work in social sciences. And so we think that there's lots of useful things to, to say to that group as well. Okay, so in your in your book, you um, getting sort of more into the meat of it, um, you outline uh, five key tasks. So um, why don't uh, Justin or Molly? Why don't we have one of you uh, tell us what those what those key tasks are, and then um, maybe give an example, you know, more more concretely of like you know one of the one of the major methods. I mean, I think you know what's interesting about your book to to back up a little bit is that you know you you take an approach of like how do we how do we approach the research process? What are the tasks? And you organize the book around that. Um, rather than, you know, like, okay, here's method one, please study this, here's the statistical properties, you know, here's the code that you need to do it, here's method two and its properties and the code needed to do it, and then go on to suggest how it might be useful. You start with the uses and then, you know, mention the the, um, the different techniques in, in the context of that. So, um, yeah, so, so what, are the, what are the key tasks? Justin, I'll, I'll go for you. Yeah, great. Um... So as you mentioned, a, a, a real focus of this book is thinking about putting this text as data into the social science research stream. And so as we were developing this book, we self-consciously wanted to be distinct from how many of these methods have been taught traditionally. And a lot of the, the organization of the methods comes from computer science, where computer scientists are thinking of the sorts of engineering tasks the methods are designed to do. If they're looking to, you know, subsidize hand coding and supervise learning, so they'll organize things in that way. Or if they're looking to discover patterns, they'll think about it as an unsupervised clustering method and they'll organize it that way. Instead, we wanted to think through what happens when we write research projects. So the first task that we described was about discovery. And this is, I, I think it's interesting. We spend a lot of time, particularly when we're in grad school, trying to figure out what we're going to write about and what we're going to say, and what new insight we have into the world. And usually we think about that as being separate from statistical methods that we might use. You know, the sort of iconic view of this is that you lock yourself in the library for a year and you come out with some brilliant idea that's going to sustain the early part of your career. And we think that's exactly wrong. We think discovery, this early stage where we're trying to figure out what's in our data or what we might have to say about the world or some new way of looking at the world can benefit a lot from statistical methods. And so there we talk about methods, like I said before, clustering methods. And so if we think about what clustering methods are, they're an unsupervised method. It doesn't require us to define a set of categories beforehand. Instead, they're just sort of emerging from the method, from the data. And this has been used in the past. I've used it with uh, Gary King, for example, to uncover an interesting categorization of congressional speech, or I think interesting, where people are uh, taunting the other side. That's, that's the thing that sort of emerges from the data. Then having discovered some organization, we think about trying to come up with some measurement in line with that organization. And so measurement is a, a, a more tried and true task. We often think about it um, when we're doing things like estimating the location of candidates in some sort of ideal point space, so their political positions. Um, 
And so here we're thinking about measurement as a way in which we can say we know some organization that's put in place and we're going to use statistical methods in order to do this efficiently. So a classic example of this is when we're hiring undergraduates to code along some sort of categorization scheme. Uh, we might think that's going to take a lot of money or a lot of pizza or a lot of money to buy pizza. Um, and undergraduates are notoriously fickle in their time and their interest in working on a project. And so we might think we can only get them for some small amount of time. And so if that's the case, we describe how statistical methods can be used in order to extrapolate from what those undergraduates did for us to categorize documents generally into a set of categories. And so then with those sorts of measurements in hand and having discovered some organization, we think about a couple key tasks that, that build on this. And I think one of the distinct things about this book, and indeed kind of the reason it took us the length of time it took us to produce this book, is that we have an extensive component in the book dedicated to causal inference. That is, we say we, we measure something about the world. We want to know if there's some intervention. Um, how does that affect either the things people say? Or if we have some text-based intervention, like an advertisement, for example, how does that affect what people do? And we spend a good deal of time discussing that. And also prediction turns out to be another big component of, of the way text methods are used. And this can be used either to you know, use text in order to literally predict the future. You know, There's a, a lot of coverage of an ill-fated hedge fund that relied upon Twitter for a while. Um, but more generally than that, we can think about using the content of Google searches in order to understand the extent level of flu, etc. So these are the key tasks that were organized uh, the book around. And we really think about this, this sort of cycle as cyclical, where um, you know, we, we work through discovery. This leads to measurement, which leads us to think about prediction and inference, and then sort of feeds back on itself. So how does, uh, how does this depart from the kind of elementary school version of, uh, of the scientific method, you know, there you were describing kind of one, one variant of that kind of the grad school version of immerse yourself in the books. But you know, the other, the other version is like you, you, I don't know, from maybe a literature or like some book you read, you have a hypothesis about the world or a theory about the world, which generates a hypothesis, which is then something that, you know, then you write down very carefully in a paper and you say, you know, I, I hate this way of writing it, but you know, it's like the H1, here's H1 hypothesis or HH2, here's H3. They just emerged from space and then, whoa, a data set came up that perfectly allowed me to answer them and I have statistical significance for all of them. So um, why is that not the, the right way to do things though? It sounds so pure. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, at the start of it that, you know, I always think about the old, uh, Oh heck, uh, uh, mnemonic. So we have this observe component and, and what the heck does that mean? Like some of it's about us being sort of situated in some social space because we're social scientists and we look out at the world. Uh, but I guess me personally, I, I like, I'm just not that smart where I'm just out looking at the world and I can just see the patterns and be like, aha, these are the hypotheses that exist and this is the way things should be. And so, Part of discovery is thinking us, helping us be better at that observation component. And then another component of this really, again, sort of reflecting the experience I think we've all had with research is that once you have something from that observation, you have a hypothesis, you put it towards data, you're going to be surprised. No one is perfect at predicting the results or anticipating what people are going to do. And given that level of surprise, it almost always suggests another study that can be done. 
And because it suggests this new study that can be done, we can think about this in this really sequential way. So we have some initial observation leads us to conduct some study based on some measurements. We have some observation and that comes from that leads us to another study. And by the end of that, as we aggregate those studies up, we're, we're in a very inductive way, we reach a conclusion um, based upon the content of, of, of uh, those studies. And of course, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we might think induction is a bad word within the social science sciences. Uh, a focus of the book is to say that this isn't necessarily the case. Um, a lot of the sorts of rules about induction being bad came from a time when data was really sparse, scarce. So if you're in a situation where it's the 1950s and you get one survey every four years, you need to construct a lot of rules to make sure people aren't going to go out and do an incredible amount of p-hacking and um, uh, you know fitting the exact right regression based on repeated interactions with that data. Now we're in a situation where we're flooded with survey data, we're flooded with text data, and the result of that is that we can think sequentially. We can say we have some idea. We can rather cheaply apply that idea to some data. We can test it. We can see some results. And then we can say, well, let, let's do that again. Let's either get some new text data or we'll take the conclusions from our text data and apply it to some other situation. And that sequence means that we can uh, build inductively rather than, I think, the standard deduction approach. That does seem to be, I mean, I get, you know, you're, you're framing it as being in the past and that's partly true, but I think it also is, I guess, maybe inherent in your main data source being text that it tends to be so, so rich, you know, I mean, we have, you know, people here who, you know, go out and do like a field experiment in Tanzania or whatever. And like, there's only so many villages they can afford to do that experiment in. And, you know, the, the, even like tracking down the same people five years later might be, might be tough. So if they can handle that, that's great. And then, you know, then, then that worry is I'm just going to like plunge in there and I'm going to keep running regressions until I get stars. And then I'm going to say I found something. Um, so anyway, maybe that's a whole separate debate, I guess, but, but I just want to highlight that. Like I, I still see, I still think for many of us and across many different social science disciplines, we're still in the world where, where that data is scarce enough that we face a difficult challenge in like how to, you know, best make use of the data we have, uh, without uh, without just you know p hacking our way into some result which which no one could ever reproduce again but but yeah in your world you know there's yeah if there's so much data we can always you know just do the same study again or you know hold out part of our data I guess that that puts you in a, in a very different um, it does kind of it just changes changes the mindset very very substantially I, so I would just say that even in the world where you're running the field experiment in Tanzania the theory of experiments is that we get to run the experiment many times and or that you have such a massive sample that you have a you, you're going to get a, a consistent estimator from the experiment and so a lot of the pre-analysis plan and other sort of world there is a, an attempt to approximate the world we should be in which is that we could repeatedly run the experiment uh in order to guard against you know just a bad draw on any one result right for sure i mean yeah you know that that's yeah part of the problem is then you know yeah, you get one chance, and if you don't get statistically significant results the first time, no one's going to go back and replicate it. So you have to get results, but then there's this weird pressure to like keep looking for stuff. And plus, even if you do get results, you know there's this uh, kind of it's sometimes some people even you know get a little bit resentful if you go back and actually you know run the experiment again in exactly the same way and find something different and say, oh well, I found something different, you know 
either in a different country or even in the same country. Or if you do it in the exact same country, people are like, what are you doing this derivative work for? Anyway, but maybe that's too far off topic. But <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. We all have the you know the same ideal, and and yes, you know the replication. And um, uh, but I, I think as a as a day to day practical matter, I think you, the um, the world with with Texas data in many of applications, I can see it. It really pushes aside a lot of the challenges that are faced in the kind of the the small data world. Um, so. Uh, so you give six, six key principles for text analysis um, is uh, another guiding thing. I can see you guys going back and flipping through your own book there to, to make sure, like, what were my six principles? Um, so uh, I have video but uh, for the audience's benefit. I have video so I can see them. But no, there's not a video that you'll be able to see. So I'm, I'm outing them here. I shouldn't have. Um, but uh, why, don't you, why don't you guys tell me um, one of... Uh, uh, Molly, what is your what is your favorite principle that, or maybe what, what principle do you find most challenging to, to convey to students? Um, and uh, you know, tell us about it and and how you how you explain it to people why it's important. Yeah, so I think my my favorite and most challenging principle it sort of builds off of what Justin was just talking about, which is um, that the best method depends on the task. Um, I find that the most difficult to teach, and it's also the reason why we structured the book in this way. I think um, you know one of the things that we talk about in the book is that a lot of these methods were developed for prediction or were developed for tasks that social scientists don't do very much. And therefore, when we take them to social science research, we actually need to like rethink about the way that they're used um, in order to make them relevant to the tasks that we want to do. And I think that every time I sit down with someone interested in using text as data, the first thing we always do is we try to figure out what task they want to do, what, what type of task. Is it that they have a new data set? They don't know what's in it. They're trying to define what they can measure. Then we're in discovery, right? Then it's like, okay, let's think about how we can use an unsupervised method to sort of explore the data, to try to understand what concepts might come from the data, how that, what things could be tested within the data. Or are we asking a very specific causal question about how did this intervention affect writing or how did some particular writing affect you know, opinion or something like that, then we're really in this causal situation where we might need to figure out like exactly what we need to measure from the text still, but it's a very different situation than we would be, say, at at the discovery stage. And so I think that making sure that, you know, understanding what task and what what part of, of the book we're in is really the first and most important part of starting a um, social science research with text is data. Um, and we talk a lot about in the book how you would approach each of these tasks very differently depending on if you're you're figuring out how to do the most accurate measurement versus if you're trying to figure out what the measure should be in the first place, for example. Jumping off that, you mentioned you know that, that these texts were, were these uh, techniques were primarily developed um, by computer scientists for sort of a different set of tasks. Just just to give context, like what 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 were what were they doing with this stuff, and how does that? What are kind of typical things they'd be up to, and uh, what sort of things do you talk about that are you know alien or surprise to them when when you when you meet up and explain what you're doing? Yeah, so I think one of the big differences that we reflect on a lot within the book is this difference between 
uh, trying to, to make a causal claim versus trying to do prediction. So a lot of what these tools have been designed to do in the first place, the tools that were, um, you know, originally coming from NLP or, or um, uh, the computer science literature, are designed to make predictions based off of text. So that could be some of what Justin was talking about, like using social media to predict how well the stock market's going to do or how well a particular political candidate is going to do, etc. And it's it would be um, a problem to apply that method in the same way to a causal question. So say I wanted to ask a different, I could, I could use Twitter to say predict how well um, a political candidate is going to do, um, so how many votes they're going to get in the next election. Or I could ask a different causal question was how does, how do Twitter posts affect people's opinion about a political candidate or affect people's vote choice about a political candidate? And those are two extremely different questions. One, in the causal question where you're saying, how does this text affect someone? You're trying to ask if the person had seen a different text or had there had been or not, had not seen a text, how would they have voted differently? You're asking a counterfactual question. In the prediction question, you're using all information about the text to make the prediction of votes. And that might not be actually a causal story at all. Those That information that you're using in for prediction might just be something about auxiliary that is actually very predictive, but not causal. And conflating those two can get you the wrong answer. It can If you decide you're going to use methods that really are about causal inference to do prediction, you can get a very low predictive power. If you decide you're going to use methods that are focused on prediction to do causal inference, you can run into a lot of other problems like um, uh, you know, having a lot of confounding, not having a good design, having um, post-treatment variables in your analysis. And so you can end up getting the wrong answer there too. And so we talk a lot about how you have to really think about what question you're asking, what you're trying to get at in order to figure out what the right method is. So um, what would be a good example of uh, sort of someone coming at it with a prediction background and thinking that they were asking the question the right way, but then, uh, I mean, you mentioned sort of, you know, generally like, you know, wrongness. I mean, well, the example, so, so in, you know, the, um, I've talked a lot to the, you know, economists working in the tech sector and sort of the common kind of example they would come up is, you know, we, who do we predict is most likely to buy this product? And then, you know, that, that's a valid question, a prediction question, but then you might jump to the causal conclusion that like, I should show this person the ad. Um, whereas actually what you really want is, is the ad going to make this person buy the product? So that's a very, you know, uh, you know, straight up commercial, um, question application. So in your world, what would be sort of, uh, is there any kind of analogous or, or easily understood like classical thing where like your first instinct would be like, oh yeah, I've predicted this and therefore I have the answer when actually you needed to rethink your design and, and make it causal. Yeah. So, um, it's hard to, uh, like what's a what's a good example of this? And Brandon, Justin, feel free to give you a really good one off the top of your head. I think you know in the example I was just using, um, you know, you might think that like um, mentions of a particular political candidate or something were very you know predictive of um, lots of votes for them, um, but would sort of just the word mentioning that political candidate actually cause in a Twitter post actually cause someone 
to vote more for that person is a question that wouldn't be answered from that analysis. So one of the things, you know, text is very high dimensional. So you could find certain words or combination of words or topics that are very predictive of a particular phenomenon, um, but wouldn't necessarily cause it. Another example of this is in, um, you know, Google flu trends, right, which is, um, which is an example of now casting, where if people are searching for something online, so you get a whole bunch of searches for flu medicine, etc. It could be a really good predictor of flu within that area. And that's like a now casting example, because, but the actually the causal arrow is going the other direction, right, is that the incidence of flu in that area is causing people to search for flu, right? Or flu-related medicine rather than flu-related medicine causing people to get the flu. Um, and so that prediction is sort of swapped in a sense. And so you wouldn't you wouldn't want to infer, for example, that searches for flu medicine caused people to get the flu. Right. Yeah. And I guess I guess thinking about like you know, even more closely hewing to the the advertising example, what you said, like, you know, if certain words are used frequently, or even if they're just like, say, a lot of tweets about a politician that maybe is associated with them winning because they're getting a lot of attention, but maybe all the tweets are, you know, hate tweets from the other side or something would be, I guess, maybe a, a really simple example of where you could get confused and think, oh, we just need to generate more Twitter buzz and all publicity is good publicity when maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's not. Um, so, so that was one of your, um, one of your key principles. Um, what's, uh, uh, what's another, what's another good one that, uh, that people, uh, tend to, tend to get wrong. Brandon, if we cycle back to you to give Molly a break. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Um, so I, I think, yeah, one of the ones that I, I like, but find very challenging to teach is, um, validations are essential and depend on the theory and the task. So this is our, our, our sort of um, one of the points that we make in the book is the idea that unlike a lot of procedures that you might think of in statistics, when you get a particular result, the validity of that result isn't really like justified by the procedure itself. The procedure is just uh, a convenient mechanism for getting something that's that's interesting. But like we don't you know, we don't believe that these are like true, like structural models of the world as you might have like structural models in, in like economics, for example. Um, and so in, instead, right, we need to do these kind of post hoc validations to show that the information we're recovering is interesting and valuable as a measurement, as a piece of discovery, as a tool for causal inference. And so the question inevitably that you get from students is, okay, well, tell me what validations to do. Or, you know, tell, tell me, like, what's the checklist? What's the, what's the, like, the rule of thumb that does this? And the problem is, is that the more routinized the validations are, often the less helpful they are because the less tuned they are to the particular task that you're doing and the particular context of what you're studying. And so, you know, there's some some good good principles for thinking about this, right? Like you, you always want some balance in text methods of recovering things that you are really confident are true, um, while also telling you new things you didn't know. Um, there's a sense in which going back and and reading the the text is always super important. Um, you want you want sort of people going in and really like seriously engaging with the documents to understand what's happening. But 
Um, but it's always just very challenging because it's it's uh, so specific to the the particular area you're working in. So I'll, I'll give an example that I really like um, from Justin's work on press releases with U.S. senators. Um, one of the things he looks at that at um, when he's characterizing the topics of these press releases is, you know, do committee chairs in the Senate talk more about their issue than other senators? Do senators from states with a lot of public land talk more about the public land topic? Right. These are just kind of baseline things that demonstrate that the topic model is really picking up something about the press releases that are important. But then you're so you're able to like push beyond that. But there's no set of rules we could write down that would like lead you to the public land strategy or the committee chair strategy, right? Because it's so specific to the particular thing he's studying. And so to me, that's that's the biggest challenge. And I think it really goes back to one of the things Justin talked about before about how we're sort of talking about like how do we do methods in this era of abundance instead of the era of scarcity. And one of the things about the era of, era of scarcity was that you got a lot more of these circumstances where the whole field would get together and collaborate on a measurement instrument, right? So everyone gets together and puts together the, the American National Election Survey or the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. And so that validation effort is spread across the whole community, like lots of people are working on making sure these questions are asked in the right way and they're capturing the right thing. But the power of Texas data is that it allows for customized measurement that we as individual scholars can choose to study the thing we want to study. And that's great because it means that, you know, we don't have to produce buy-in to convince people to put a question on the ANES. But it also means that the validation's up to us. And I think these kinds of like high stakes, open-ended things like this uh, that involve a lot of work on the back end of the study are, you know, they're hard sell to anyone, uh, but particularly, you know, graduate students who like really need to publish some papers quickly. I, I did notice in what you were saying and, and in the book, in a few places you were um, setting yourself against um, a framework of there being sort of a true model that we're trying of, of the data that we're trying to recover that from. I, I'd like to hear more about that because actually what you're saying seems you know, very similar to how I was trained both in political science and economics, uh, you know, how to think about models of all sorts. So, you know, so whether it's a statistical model, you know, if I run a regression on something and draw a line through some points, I don't really think the line is the true thing. I just think it's a reasonably good, you know, summary of like what's going on, or maybe it's, or, you know, which may or may not even be causal, but like, you know, at least some basic sense of like, okay, when this gets bigger, this also gets bigger, but not in a, um, but that's not the true model. There's lots of ways you could do it. Um, and, and also like, you know, in, in game theoretic model, there's, you know, uh, the way I've tended to sort of, I've come down on the story of, you know, um, thinking of them as, as parables, right? So there's a, it's a, it's a thing that captures something important about the world or about a phenomenon, um, but not everything. And even like, even like structural modelers in industrial organization, you know, they're looking at monopolies or whatever. I don't think they're, you know, I guess I come back to, um, you know, there was a, ancient uh, or old Jorge Luis Borges story about there, you know, this country that tried to make a map, uh, the most perfect map, and the map eventually became the entire world, because if you want to map the entire world, it needs to be as big as the entire world and have every single feature, and their whole country was, I think, smothered under this map. So, you know, we can't build that map, so we're trying to build maps that are useful for the purpose they're at. But but tell me more about, like, so who, so who is it who doesn't think that? <laughs> 
or, or, you know, what's, and, and I'm probably, I don't want to misrepresent what they're saying or what you're saying, but like, who, who are you, who are you fighting with here? I don't know if we're, we're fighting with them, but we have a, a, I think a nice point of disagreement. And, and so perhaps, uh, and, and Molly and Brandon should correct me if I get the sort of specifics of the, the sort of sources of disagreement wrong. Uh, there's a really nice articulation of, I think, an alternative view from, from uh, Arthur Sperling and Matt Denny in a nice paper that's about um, how to think about pre-processing text. And to get really at the core of where the dispute comes down to is whether we can use quantitative measures that are direct consequences of the model to validate things like topic models and clustering models and supervised methods. And if it is the case that we think a clustering model where we're just going to sort documents into categories uh, where we haven't pre-specified those categories, if it's uncovering some true underlying fact about the world where we really believe that we've uncovered the right um, uh, objective function and the right way we're going to do optimization so that this organization corresponds exactly to the organization we are seeking, then it is the case that we can use statistics from that exercise in order to adjudicate between different models that we may want to use. And so you, you are getting a lot of juice for that squeeze, if that makes sense, um, if you make that assumption. At the core of our view, though, where we draw the distinction is that even though we think it's useful to write down an objective function that defines what it means for a clustering to be good or not not good or how it is we think optimization should proceed. Um, we think that the end result of that only sort of approximates the thing that the researcher had in mind and that those statistics then are necessarily limited. And so that's where we that's why we rely so uh, strongly on these validations because these validations uh, help us to construct evaluations that are closely tied to the substantive way that we want to use these models. Uh, and so this general sort of model-based skepticism then leads us to this whole framework of evaluation where it's really about evaluating the models in a context where we're going to use the models or in a way in which we're going to use the models. I think one of the challenges too that is that multiple paths will lead you to sort of thinking about it like there's a true answer, right? So um, if, you know, you look in the computer science literature, a lot of times they are just trying to get the model that like fits the data well in terms of like holding out data and doing a prediction on it. And so from that answer, that sense, there is like, like a sort of right answer in the sense that for our particular corpus size, like we we can, you know, choose some parameters that will will get you the best prediction. But the best prediction doesn't necessarily accord with our like substantive goals. The other direction you can kind of get to this same place is folks that look at this and think about it more like they think about um, you know, regression or things like that than they think about it like reading. Right. And so, you know, there are some classes on regression, right, that kind of take this like agnostic approach of we're just like approximating a thing with a line. But there's lots of other kind of takes that people have in teaching where it's, you know, it's more like, oh, okay, we're going to like really believe in this like linear model and we need to pick, you know, the right statistical model. And and so I, I sometimes see like, you know, this kind of yearning for a little bit more clarity that, that students want to have about like what the right answer is. But the funny thing, of course, is if you think about it like reading, 
if you sat down and you said, what is the right way to organize these texts or what is the right way to read this document? People would like look at you like you're crazy, right? Like it, it, it just, there's something about the abstraction of, of the thing into data that um, I think tricks people into thinking sometimes that there's cleaner answers than there are. And so the, the key is like, once you pin down what you're trying to do, we can have a serious conversation about how well you're doing that. Uh, but before you've pinned down what you're trying to do, there's like lots of things you can do with documents. There's lots of things we could measure in it. So uh, that's, that's you know, I, I don't know if that's like fighting with a particular philosophical camp, but I think maybe that's some explanation of like how people come in thinking there's going to be a single right answer when, when you look at it from the perspective of reading, it, there fairly obviously isn't going to be. Yeah, I guess it's right. We have sort of two brains. We have the brain that's trained in our statistics class where maybe there, you know, is or, or in a natural science class where there's something pretty close to a right answer, at least, you know, at the scale you're looking at, you know, and whatever, you know, you're going to put these two chemicals together and a certain thing's going to happen. Um, but um, versus like, I guess, you know, any of us who've had, you know, high school English, right? <laughs> like it's sort of, you know, you read a book and it's like, what is the true meaning of the book? Well, there's what the author thought when, you know, she was writing the book. And then there's what this person thought a hundred years later. And then there's interesting questions about, you know, how the text in the book relates to the cultural and historical context that it happened. And then there's, you know, another way that, you know, now we read the book and we, you know, notice things or, you know, that are completely different about it and find it meaningful for, for totally different reasons, I guess. Yeah. So we're sort of more, much more open to, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'll admit, you know, it took me a while to learn this. Like I definitely, I was actually, cause I mean, specifically in high school, like I was like, Oh, I found something the author wrote where he said what he really meant. It's like, okay, now I know the answer. There's the answer. And like, you know, my English teachers and later English professors and the couple of, you know, college classes I took, they're like, no, that's not really how it works for us anymore. <laughs> um, there's not one answer. Uh, but, and clearly for social phenomena and then, yeah, it depends. Yeah. How it, yeah, what you're really trying, right? What what the objective of your um, of your thing, uh, your your research is. Um, so, why don't we, um, as a last thing, maybe dig into one more of your research projects? It's just sort of an illustration of the the technique um, in action. Um, Molly, do you want to go ahead with something maybe that you're working on? Uh, uh, I think the one the one that I you know in the book you've described some projects that I know very well. Um, but uh, is there anything uh, newer that you're working on that maybe you could talk about just as an illustration of some of these concepts and how it's come up? Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like I uh, writing this book was so useful in my own work because it gave me. A roadmap that I go back to now, and um, you know, especially you know, writing it with Brandon and Justin, and kind of setting these setting this roadmap down is now now something that I, I go back to a lot. So, um, just an example of work, uh, recent work that I know we've talked about before, Peter. Um, I I have been involved in working on um, this very very large corpus of text data that's been made available by the Supreme People's Court in China online on um, billions and millions of descriptions of legal cases. And this is this amazing corpus um, and an amazing sort of effort and transparency by the legal system in China. And we've been trying to understand what this can tell us about. Um, and so I've been collaborating um, with some legal scholars, Rachel Stern and Ben Liebman, 
um, to better understand this. And it's been very much the same process um, and a lot of the discovery and measurement tasks that we talk about within this book. Because um, so if you have you know, millions of administrative legal cases that no one has ever, I mean, people have looked at maybe one by one, but not really looked at at scale. All of a sudden you have to ask the question of what is in this? You know, what are the things, what are the topics and the types of cases and um, it's a huge effort in discovery. And so we ended up relying a lot on um, topic models in, an, in conjunction with close reading of these cases. So sort of to organize these cases, to try to better understand what is even in this, this data. Um, you know, what are, what are the types of things that people are, um, uh, you know, suing the government about within China? What are the types of things that people, the civil cases that are coming up, what types of criminal cases are people um, convicted in versus not convicted? There's so many questions that you can ask So um, that are both measurement, discovery, prediction, um, et cetera. So I'll, um, I'll give you one example. So uh, we found, we did this big topic model of administrative legal cases. So these are cases where people are suing mostly local governments um, about uh, different issues. And we found that there were a whole bunch of cases where people, the actual um, target of the case is not um, the government, even though they are suing, technically suing the government, but it's actually some other third party. So they're trying to sue the government to find more information so that they can then use it later in a civil case against another party, or they're trying to get the government to do something against another party. Um, and so that was sort of surprising. It was maybe like a third of these cases that were about this, really about another party. And um, in the Chinese politics literature, administrative cases have often been used as like a proxy, the number of administrative cases for a sort of discontent against the government. But if so many of these cases are actually really about third parties, maybe that measure is, is not quite right. And nobody had really ever looked at this at scale before because this data had never been available. So I think um, that's just one example of, of just even just starting at discovery, just trying to figure out what are the things we can measure and then saying, okay, we want to measure this one thing. Um, you know, how many cases are about a third party? And so how would we do that with text? And um, we didn't even get to the, uh, in that in particular case, we didn't get to the causal and prediction steps. Just doing that in its own right was was interesting enough. Right. And I guess that, that's kind of a challenge within social science because we sort of have, uh, you know, rightfully, you know, there's the, the right, the good thing is, recognizing what you know to be very clear about when you're talking about like just a correlation or a statistical relationship or description or a measurement versus uh when you're making a causal claim and being uh, a little bit stricter with ourselves um about that but then i think that's also uh pushed people away from doing you know that kind of descriptive work like you described just figuring out like oh you thought that these cases were mostly about this but actually they're mostly about something totally different or not mostly or at least a big chunk of them have they they're not the thing you think they were you know you looked at you know uh yeah i mean i guess you know in a sense it's kind of a, a misquantification because people were coding you know each every administrative case i see must be someone fighting back against the man when actually it was like someone trying to get you know the man, I mean, the party to kind of help them out in their own fight with some other ordinary person. Right. I think, I, I think that's a kind of an interesting aspect of the way that social science research is changing. I think, um, you know, in the past, there sort of used to be this, this 
sort of conflict between qualitative and quantitative scholars in the social sciences. And I think that with text as data and with these others' methods, um, I, I see that conflict sort of disappearing, right? It's this is, um, you know, you have to have this sort of deep reading, this understanding of the context. And this is another one of our principles is like substantive knowledge is essential uh, for research design and, and, and close reading is, is, is really important. So you have to have this, this context and this knowledge in order to understand what's going on within the text and to use the tool well um, at the same time. Um, the tool itself can help sort of organize that process. And I also think that it's it can push us less toward, you know, always having to have a causal question in the social sciences to sort of being able to make some um, descriptive claims that are that are very um, important in their in their own right. So which I think is is really important in the social sciences. We don't always have to have a causal question. We can we can make um, a lot of progress. Um, making discoveries about organizations of, of concepts and also um, and also making good measurement and, and that's something that the qualitative literature is, has you know done well um, in the past. Yeah, that was good. It's definitely a different um, approach. I mean, it's sort of thinking like yeah, in in I'd say the the old days version of you know there'd be the person who had their data and they ran their regression and then the qualitative scholar would be like, well, I feel like it works differently than that when I actually go and like talk to people in the country and I met with a couple hundred of them it's like well but I have my survey of 2000 so therefore you know and I've got p-values so you know screw you um and it would uh yeah kind of you know never never the two sides would meet um so so it's nice to hear that uh, that you see uh, this this text analysis and and you know especially the process of validation um as uh, a validation, you know, thinking about what you're really measuring as uh, an important way for these uh, uh, two approaches to kind of uh, recognize, I say recognize their, their common aims, which I think always were common aims, but also maybe, or, or common value to each other. Okay, well, um, we're just about uh, out of time. Um, so maybe one last question, I guess, uh, which we addressed a little bit before, but like, um, I was thinking, you know, economists love quantifying things. That's like kind of uh, their self-description in many ways. Um, you know, it's no longer, you know, a long, long time ago it was about money, but now it's like, it's not about money. It's just about anything, you know, anything I can do, you know, uh, I can look, you know, I could go and look at Congress or, you know, Chinese censorship or, you know, whatever, whatever you want, as long as I can like either have a, a you know, a game theoretic model or um, have some data about it. Um, but uh, despite this love, I feel like te- text as data has not been as big a thing in economics. Um, do you do you have? Is that also your sense? Or do you have any um, any idea why that is? So uh, maybe a cross plug here. So with uh, Steve Davis at the Hoover Institution, we run a uh, once a month text workshop, and obviously Steve Davis is a very prominent macroeconomist who has also done a lot with with text data. And he has used uh, text data to do things like measure policy uncertainty and the certainty with which actors are willing to attribute events in the stock market to various world events. Um, And in that workshop, I've gotten a sense of sort of what economists are up to when they look at text data. And some of this, I think, might be a little bit sociological. So uh, 
for a variety of maybe accidental reasons, computer scientists and political scientists were a bit closer together uh, and, and able to collaborate. Some of this is about the sort of nature of political science where uh, political scientists are very close to laws and text. And, and so it was perhaps a little bit easier to incorporate into our line of work. And you know, some of this, I do think, comes back to this idea of thinking about whether we can even define bias for some estimators, and um, which we argue is not possible, for again, for things like unsupervised. And I think perhaps that was a little bit friendlier in political science than economics, but I, I want to be clear that there's a number of economists who are doing fantastic work uh, using text as data and, and using it to study a wide range of things, um, you know, movements in financial markets and, and sort of the, you know, the behavior of various companies. Uh, there's a long history of using text as data to study 401k report or uh, 10k, not 401k, 10k reports for companies. So uh, I think, you know, four years from now, economists will claim that they've dominated political science in this. <laughs> well, that is, that is uh, based, on, based on past performance. That would be the, the outcome that I would expect, but um but that's good. I'm glad you've, you've at least justified. So I, by, by, by sharing your secrets on uh, this uh, new books and economics channel, um, you've now, you've now hastened the day when the imperialists will come and, uh, and conquer your territory. Um, but I appreciate you sharing because um, after all, we're all supposed to be in it for the love of knowledge and developing a social science. And um, this book is so uh, again, the title of the book is text is data. Um, you know, encourage uh, anyone, you know, even if you haven't been using text as data, I think this is, uh, it's, a, it's a thick book. I admit, I can see why it guys took you guys a while because you really, you really thought through a lot of different things. And so there's, there's a lot to get through there, but I think it is even, you know, at an introductory level, just like trying to figure out like what is going on and what tools might I be wanting to pick up or, you know, for, uh, you know, even someone, let's say older and lazier, like what, what tools might I want my hat to have my grad student pick up so that we can like study something new. Um, even if, you know, I can't program anymore or whatever. Um, it's a, it's a very useful handbook for understanding like how, how it all works, um, and, and what it's for. Um, so, uh, congratulations. Um, it, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And, um, I encourage everyone listening. Uh, I probably, if you know, if you've gotten this far on the podcast, you're definitely the kind of person who wants to read this book. So uh, you should go do it. <laughs>